Welcome to Kibi on Liberty. Jennifer, hey, how's it going? Good. How are you, Matt? Good. We're finally meeting sort of uh, technically, technologically in person. Um, and and I know we've been chatting a little bit um, through messages, but I've really wanted to have this conversation, and I, I wish we even had more time to talk about all this stuff. Um, but your new book, Levi's Unbuttoned, The Woke Mob Took My Job But Gave Me My Voice, um, how long has it been out now? It's just a few days, actually, not even a week, less okay. than a week, four or five days. How how is it going so far? It's going. Um, you know, I want I want I want to get it in people's hands. I want people to read it. I want to hear what they think. Um, so you know, still out here talking to folks like you and 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 hoping people spread the word because yeah, I think it's going to resonate. I think it's. Um, it's different maybe than what some people expect. You know, I think first and foremost, it really is a kind of call to action for people to kind of stand up and use their voices and um, push back on any narrative that they think is faulty or untrue. We know that about two thirds of Americans say they don't say what they really think. And I think this is really damaging and problematic for a million reasons, which we can talk about. Um, but it's also a memoir. Um, you know, there's some personal stuff. It's not just about woke capitalism. It is a lot about that because I certainly ran headlong into it and lost my job because of it. Uh, but but it's my sort of personal story of being able to come to finding the confidence to use my own voice. Yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of a classic hero's journey, the way I read the book, because, um, you know, it sort of, sort of follows the arc of of your career, the challenges you faced, and then you found your dream job, and then you had to make what what had to be. I just can't even imagine making that decision, essentially leaving the the career and and even the family that you had had loved for so long. Um, and so so why don't you? I mean, I I first read your story when you published um, that piece on Barry Weiss's website. And that, that, I guess, was kind of your last day on the job or something, right? Or soon yeah, after? Yeah, I mean, I, I technically resigned, and I did resign. You know, I wasn't fired, but I was told there wasn't a job for me anymore in the company. Um, I was offered severance. Severance always comes with a non-disclosure agreement about the terms of the separation. And I felt it was really important to speak about the terms of this separation because I did not want to leave. I was doing a good job. Our business was in great shape. All of the warnings that me using my voice about um, closed schools in defense of children, all of those warnings that that was going to be damaging to the company's reputation, the stock price, sales, et cetera, none of that came true. Uh, but I went against the prevailing narrative, in this case, the Democratic Party narrative. And it became the woke narrative that, you know, if you didn't want to stay home, lock your kids in their room and isolate them, you were a very, very bad, bad person yeah. that wanted to kill people. And it was a very difficult decision. I, um, I did not accept the severance because I did not want to sign the non-disclosure agreement. And I resigned very publicly. And that's when you saw the story on Barry's 
common sense Substack. And I told the story of how I was essentially pushed out for speaking up in defense of children. So as I recall, it cost you a million bucks to, to, to buy your voice back. Um, was that a was that a difficult decision? Sure. Yeah, that's a lot of financial security. You know, right. um, look, I I'm not pretending to be anyone I'm not. You know, I was an executive for many years. I did well. I had the financial freedom to move my family to Colorado during I lived in California before that um, so that my kids could go to school. They go to public school. Uh, but I wanted them to be in school, and I had the freedom to do that. I recognize that a lot of folks don't have that opportunity, and I, um, people shouldn't have to choose between their career, their children, their voice, their beliefs. Uh, and yet, you know, what my story seems to say is that using your voice, in my case, in defense of children, is an HR violation. I mean, it's enraging. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a almost very crazy. Choice. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a crazy, crazy. thing to say out loud that that you would be punished for. Um, and it, this week we could get into to, to COVID because I certainly um, my career trajectory and and the business that we do at Free the People was always meant to be sort of transpartisan, re- reaching across partisan divides and 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 finding those those common issues and common values that might hold people together. But when lockdowns happened, I, I had the same reaction you did. I'm like, this is the most insane um, punishing of, 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 of people at the bottom of the economic ladder. Like I was thinking about it as an economist um, and you were, you were perhaps thinking about it as, as a mom who saw the, the damage being done to kids. But it was so, it was so obvious from day one that this would be insanely destructive, and that the destruction would not hit everybody equally, and and to be to be punished for for voicing those concerns, particularly from from the woke left, I'm I'm still trying to figure out exactly why that that's happening. I think that's right. I I'm still by it um, because it seems to be such a violation of the values that they profess to hold dear, yeah, you know, protection of children and the underclass equality. I mean, we denied equality of opportunity, not just to children with closed schools, but to small business owners and, and, and the folks who had the least suffered the most. And we know it was the largest upward transfer of wealth ever, basically. So the very rich, not just the rich, but the very rich got much, much, much richer and everybody else suffer 25 million people were laid off due yeah. to lockdown where was the outrage everyone's mad about elon musk laying off 3700 well-paid tech workers it's still enraging to me to this day 25 million people lost their jobs these were largely underinsured hourly wage workers with no savings to get them through and all people shouted about was, well, we need to send them a $1,000 check. How long do you think that lasted, that $1,000? Yeah, yeah. Not very long. And so it seemed such an obvious trespass of the values the left claimed to hold so dear. And the hypocrisy, I just, 
it, it was driving me insane. I couldn't stop even when I knew my job was at risk. And I will tell you, there was a real moment of truth for me, which was in the fall of 2020 when all the private schools opened in my city where I used to live of San Francisco, all my peers sent their kids back to private school and told me I had to stay quiet about public school children. Yeah. And there was no turning back for me. It just exposed the whole lie. And I was like, you're all liars. Yeah, yeah. It's um, th this whole have versus have not created by COVID because my, my reaction as an economist early on, you may remember that there early on there was a hashtag, stay the fuck home. And, and, yeah. and I thought about it, I'm like, what if you actually meant that and everybody had to stay home? Um, it would be a unspeakable catastrophe. People would, would starve to death, start starving to death in a couple of weeks. And it would start obviously with people at the margins, not people with, uh, with ice cream packed in their, in their freezer like um, you know who, I won't mention her. Um, but obviously that's not what they really meant. They meant that those people who are privileged enough to have the wealth and the, the safety to stay home, um, they would stay home and they would expect so-called essential workers to, to produce the food somehow. They don't know how food is produced, but they're gonna produce it. And as long as that Uber Eats driver comes to their door with it, uh, you're, you're doing the virtuous thing. And it's just so, it's so insanely elitist and out of touch. It's just, it's grotesque. It really is. And there was no other way it was going to work. How were these wealthy people going to get their food, to your point? And by the way, they had pods for their kids. I mean, the ones who weren't truly, truly desperately afraid, which was a lot of people. They had learning pods and they hired tutors. And when private schools opened, you bet they sent them back. They weren't too afraid to do that. And yet this idea that the virtuous thing to do, the noble, the good thing to do was to say, stay the fuck home. Um, and order your Uber Eats and watch Netflix. That wasn't virtuous. It was incredibly harmful to the vast majority of people. I think um, Jay, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya calls it trickle-down epidemiology, and it was supposed to sort of protect these other folks. And, you know, very early on in a conversation that I had with a family member that was very revealing to me, he said, well, we have to just protect who we can. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And which... I was like, that's it. You just said the thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, don't our, care. I mean, there, there's this, um, I don't think there's actual self-awareness on this hypocrisy and it gets to a, a central theme in your book that, that it was a cult. And, you know, I, I, I refer to it as a religion because you, you can't question the tenets of, of these principles because they're articles of faith. Um, and they're not to be, not to be questioned. The science was the religion and the science right. science was utterly unscientific. When when did it be when, when did the cult happen? Like I'm trying to figure out and, and by the way, the cult is is absolutely lockdowns, but it's also um, um, wokeness and intersectionality and and now it might even be um, un unwavering support for infinite resources to, to Ukraine. And these things don't seem to have anything in common and yet it's all the same thing. Yeah. If you understand the answer of how those things are connected, I would like you to tell me. I, I don't totally get it. And I think about it a lot. Um, I think 
the commonality is that you cannot question that it is religious in nature. It provides a framework for how to make decisions and how to be on the good side, how to be on the right of virtue. Um, I think in a world that is increasingly secular, people still have a religious impulse. I say this as an atheist. Um, and I, I also say this as an atheist. I think religion is better. This is, you know, it's providing people with this framework for right and wrong. They want to be on the good team more than they want to actually be right. They don't want to have to think about it or question. And so they adopt these dictates, um, whether they make any sense or not. And they yeah. think not only are they the virtuous ones, they think they're the smart ones, which also yeah. drives me crazy because they're not reading anything. They're not well informed. They're watching the chirons on CNN saying, you're all going to die. Don't leave the house, which was always a lie. Um, and it justifies such tremendous harm to others. You know, when I think about people I thought were good people who advocated vociferously for people to lose their jobs and not receive medical treatment because they declined the vaccine. This is cruel and yeah. indecent treatment, um, but because they're the good people, that's what makes it religious. I like your, your terminology and I, it is cult-like. I uh, recently rewatched Going Clear, the documentary about Scientology. And I was like, they're just like him, this yeah. Miss Cabbage who runs Scientology. And, this idea that you have to disconnect from people that don't believe or that ask questions, you know, they call it disconnection, I think, in Scientology. Um, that's been practiced. These people are so evil if they even dare ask a question that you must shun them. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's dehumanizing and as, you know, the, the phrase, I guess, is othering um, whatever that, that tribe or, or category of yeah. humans is you want to... You want to dehumanize them so that you can actually, like I never thought I would see this in the United States, the idea that, that people would proudly say that person should be denied medical care because of, of a choice that they made. And, and we, would, yeah. we wouldn't do that to um, um, people that make all sorts of horrible choices in their lives. It's just and not, then harm it's others. not what we do, yeah. Yeah, I mean, this was something that, got me all rubbed up and it was something I was told I should never comment on. And I actually, in fact, um, conceded to my peers' demands and deleted some of the social media posts I'd made on this. But I agree with you. I never thought I'd see something like this, not in this country. It's a clear violation of the Hippocratic Oath. And yet in the fall of 21, doctors were writing op-eds like mad saying they need to be denied treatment. Drunk drivers who kill other people are treated at the hospital. Active shooters are given treatment. And yet somehow an unvaccinated person is so evil that they should not receive medical treatment. Now, I have a, a theory that the purpose of those op-eds, as they were written, was not so much to get doctors to deny the treatment, but to make other people hate the unvaccinated and right. to really create division, yeah. um, which worked. Yeah, it worked. Thank you for joining me today on Kibbe on Liberty and for being part of our fiercely independent audience. Every week, my organization, Free the People, partners with Blaze TV to bring you this show. My guests bring smart perspectives on everything from current events to timeless philosophical debates. If you like what you hear, go to freethepeople.org slash KOL and support Kibbe on Liberty 
so we can continue to produce these honest conversations with interesting people. Now, let's get back to it. So, I mean, I have I have half-baked theories on on what might be going on, and it's uh, and I'll, I'll test some of them on you, and you tell me if I'm okay. I'm crazy. But I th- I think, you know, if 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 civics has become a religion, and particularly kind of a a centralized vision for how society should function, sort of a techno-authoritarian, we're all going to get vaccinated, um, we're, we're going to let experts decide who's essential and non-essential, and, and we could list a thousand things that was done in this. The problem is if you deviate from, from um, the faith, you make it very difficult for them to impose those things from the top down. So I think it's, I think it's part of our, our broader problem of both centralizing power in Washington, D.C. and making it such a tribal fight between this team and that team and whoever's in charge gets to start doing what they want to the rest of us. So I think it's um, if if you want to centralize everything like that, you cannot allow for dissident voices because they screw up everything. They 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 break up the, the sense that that you're right. I think that's part of what's going on. I think that's correct. And I think in order to drive towards the type of system that you just described, this sort of centralized, very bureaucratic, um, inhumane system, you, you have to deny the humanity of the individual because it becomes all about the collective and the group. And we're told that that's better, but the individual's humanity is utterly denied. And so anyone who strays is retaining their humanity. They're retaining their own ability to think and their voice. And that is a danger to the system that only values the collective. And this country, I thought, was built on this sort of notion of individual rights and rugged individualism. And I think that's why my story, I wasn't going to try to come back to this, but why it resonated so much because Levi's was this is or was this brand that kind of embodied those values of rugged individualism. It's sort of like the epitome of those American values. And so for this company to trespass against those values in such an obvious way, it's also such a well-known brand. Like it's not like it's Salesforce, which is a much bigger company, but no one knows what they do, right? Everybody's got a pair of Levi's. And so it felt very familiar. Um, but that denial of the individual, and, and, and that's why I say, even as an atheist, you know, I found myself amongst this new group of friends who have, you know, fought for the rights of the individual during this time. Many of them, not all, but many are religious from various walks of life and different yeah. religions. And the thing that I see that they all have in common is they do value sort of the soul and the spirit of human beings and that seems to be lost in the science for sure yeah Yeah, there's um and i'm sure everybody tells you a story about their favorite pair of levi's but but i still have um by the way we've been joined by one of my cats he's a co-producer on the show so i love it um, he does not have a pair of levi's but but i still have the i still have the pair when i was loading trucks at ups at night in graduate school and and this pair the entire um front of the leg is worn off because you're leaning against the conveyor belt and and i can't throw those guys away you're gonna hang up this whole show buddy stop 
You know, your story, um, everyone does have a Levi's story. And our whole campaign that I initiated or led back in 2014 was based on that idea. And it's exactly for the reason you just said. There's memories built into them. They bear the markings of your life in a sense. So yeah. the memory you just had is is evidence of that. Yeah. Yeah. So like how did, um, and this, this gets to your story and maybe answers the question. You're screwing up the entire shoot, buddy. Stop. <laughs> Um, my cats are very libertarian, so they, they tend to do whatever they want. Um, I like it. The, so, so something happened from, I mean, Levi's was this, this very rugged individualist thing. And, and certainly, and you point out in the, in the book that the, the, the family and the executives at Levi's are very progressive, democratic. But, but when did it go from what I would call classic liberal values to woke authoritarian values, because to me, it's fundamentally different. Yeah, I agree. It is, there's a fundamental difference there. You know, I think it happened slowly and then suddenly all at once. I, I would say it didn't really start in earnest until probably around 2017. Um, so, you know, this is not a longstanding thing. Now, you know, I do iterate this in the book, Levi's is a company that for a very long time has taken what I would call bold stance to take care of their employees. So they integrated factories um, before the law required it in the in the 50s and 60s. And employees were mad about it. Employees quit, but they said, we're doing this. It's the right thing to do. I mean, I wasn't there, but I imagine what, <laughs> that's what they said. Um, they offered same-sex partner benefits in 1992, first Fortune 500 company to do so. I applaud this. I was proud of these things. I think offering more um, equality to your employees is a good thing. But this, and sort of turning those political beliefs outward, not really driving any action off of them, just doing it to virtue signal, that started probably around 2017, 2018. And then just was lit on fire during COVID. And then of course, in the summer of 2020 with all the protests, when every yeah. single company just had to signal um, how much they really, really, really care. Now, there weren't really clear actions associated with any of this care. And at the same time, most companies were taking actions that harmed the lowest paid workers. You know, one thing I haven't heard you talk about in trying to understand why um, capitalism became so woke because the phrase that I think I got from you is woke capitalism, which I think I think is a, is a great descriptor for this somewhat mysterious virtue signaling, um, almost struggle session version of corporate culture. Um, that's that's a little bit different than things I've seen in the past. And and I was thinking about uh, you've also mentioned our good friend uh, I can never get his his acronym right. Um, Sam Bank FTX. Sam Bankman Freed and FTX. I assume you've seen this 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 conversation he had with I think Vox, oh, yeah. Yeah. where um, and Vox asks him, "You're really good at talking about ethics for someone who kind of saw it all as a game with winners and he, and losers," and he says, "Yeah." Hee hee, I had to be. It's what reputations are made of to some extent. I feel bad for those who get fucked by it. So, 
Well, then say the next part. He said, it's a game woke Westerners play so people like us. Yeah. But this this dumb game we woke Westerners play where we say all the right shibboleths so that everyone likes us. Um, He's kind of admitting what the whole game is, right? He said the whole thing out loud. Yeah. He said it all. Um, Now, I think the difference between him and many others is I think others aren't so aware that that's what they're doing. I think they embrace it and believe it. And I think one of the things that drives it, and I do write about this at length because I've had to think about it. It used to be business and capitalism was the purview of the right and everyone accepted it. Greed was good. Remember that? Mm -hmm. Well, now that um, the party dynamics have essentially shifted, right, and you have the left is the party of the elite and you have tech companies led by, you know, woke lefties. And I think they feel a little guilty about the fact that they're super rich and that guess what? Underneath that richness is some greed. They want to be rich. You don't get really rich by accident. You don't, you don't, sorry. You don't stumble upon a billion dollars by accident. That's what you're going for. You can call it effective altruism and you can say you want to give it away. It's bullshit. It, it, so I think their, their guilt, the, the, in the past, the banking leaders and oil barons and Wall Streeters, like they didn't feel guilty about it. They, they loved it. They celebrated it. They said greed was good. These folks feel a little guilty about it. So they, they wrap this woke cloak around themselves to signal that they are in fact good. They are really social justice warriors. They would have gone into nonprofit or teaching, but felt they could make a bigger difference this way. And it's a line of crap, but they do start to believe it themselves after a while. I I suppose on a very, they start believing it and it makes them feel better, but also as a practical business strategy for, for cynical business people trying to game the system. Like if you had played yeah. the game, the woke mob would not have gone after you. Yeah, if I had um, tweeted all day long about how stay the fuck home yeah. and keep the schools closed forever, and if you don't want to, you're a horrible person that wants teachers to die, I would have gotten promoted again, right? Like that was an acceptable position to have. Um, and so I think you're right. I. You know, the second piece of it is I do think they think it's good business strategy and they think that younger consumers, Gen Z's and millennials, you know, it's an attempt to really sort of profit and commoditize their activism, which in and of itself is sort of grotesque to commoditize activism. Now, we can debate how real and authentic that activism is. Like if your activism is buying a T-shirt with a rainbow Nike swoosh on it. Mm, I kind of question the legitimacy of that. So the companies make it really easy for consumers to feel virtuous because all they need to do, they don't really have to put anything on the line. They just have to buy the t-shirt. So it's this pact in a weird way where do nothings, do nothing, but get all the kind of virtue halo of having done something. You know, they like to talk about themselves both the leaders and the consumers as good trouble. They're no trouble at all. All they want to do is fit in. They'd rather fit in than do the right thing. Um, and I ran into that headlong. What One of the things I've been thinking about in the last few days is in addition to being sort of a, a dissident or a kind of unwilling to accept this, this woke ideology, it made me a traitor to my class 
in a sense as well. And I think that was, I've only sort of come to this in the last day or two, but that was also punishable because the pact is we don't tell anyone what SBF told that reporter. He exactly. thought he was telling a peer that would keep his secret because she was in on it too. That's why he had no qualms about saying it. Um, I wasn't supposed to, I wasn't supposed to notice. And if I noticed, I certainly wasn't supposed to say it. And I wasn't supposed to expose anyone as fraudulent. And I did. And you can't have that because the whole thing comes tumbling down, potentially, if enough people question it. Yeah. And that, that goes to the, the, there cannot be deviation from, from, from the faith. You know the the other half. I mean, it, it's I'm sure it's just a coincidence that, that FTX was pouring um, apparently billions of dollars into one party that happened to control the White House and and both um, houses of Congress. So there's there's a bit of a public choice story here where they're they're buying influence. They're 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 buying. Um, in this case, we're going to look the other way because we we can't we can't, we're we're culpable too. Our hands are dirty. So we're just going to look the other way as this whole thing bilks, um, you know, billions from people. Well, and that's the danger is, you know, what he purchased with his money was no one was going to scrutinize what was going on here. And it took all of three seconds for somebody to actually look at the balance sheet and the PL and go, this is full of air. There's nothing here. There's no there, there. There's no corporate controls. None of this makes any sense. It's a big Ponzi scheme. It was all there. The same could be said of WeWork, which eventually basically collapsed. I mean, it still exists, but it went from sort of close to $50 billion valuation to five. Um, there was no there, there either. But all of this woke hand waving and arm waving um, sort of bought them a pass, right? It bought them a pass and no one looked into it and no one scrutinized it. It's interesting. I was watching uh, the documentary the other night about the WeWork guy, Adam Newman, and Derek Thompson is in it. And, you know, the reporter from The Atlantic, and he talks about, and they show a little snippet of an interview he'd done with him. And he says in it, in my mind, I was sort of wondering if this was legit, but I didn't want to say anything. And so, you know, the journalists, fall prey to this influence as well. And they fall prey to this kind of business leaders cloaking themselves in these woke causes and everybody cheering for them. Look at Elizabeth Holmes. Everybody put her on a mag magazine cover. Nobody wanted to question her intentions or her authenticity or if her freaking business worked at all. Yeah. They didn't until it was too late. And the danger here is when we create this culture, either in business or in the world at large, where you cannot question bad things happen. Bad things happen in business, corruption, theft, criminality, um, and bad things happen in the world. You know, And we certainly don't have a culture of free speech when anyone who questions the narrative is demonized. We, we don't. Yeah, there's, propaganda. If you've made it this far into the show, it means I must be doing something right. Kibbe on Liberty is just one of the amazing products we created for the people. We tell emotionally compelling stories and produce educational videos for the Liberty curious. Our award-winning documentaries personalize all things Liberty, independence, creativity, hard work, integrity, and perseverance. After the show, check out our work at freethepeople.org. And if you like what you see, donate to support what we do. 
That's freethepeople.org. Now back to the show. I mean, we're we're getting at economic structures and, and perverse incentives that 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 create this closed, top-down system. And I think I think most corporate media falls into that category. They're yeah. they have the same masters as as the political class and and woke corporate America, which which I think helps explain why everyone's freaking out about Elon Musk, right? So, the one guy that is is. I mean, he, he's he's not even a free speech radical. He's just like I want I want a more open platform, and and there was apparently this system where um, there are official narratives that are allowed and those that aren't allowed, and and some of this, a lot of this, is being dictated from the government itself at the Department of Homeland Security of all places. So I think I think again they're like trying to do whack a mole where um, you know you didn't comply and now you're a problem Elon Musk in a bigger way because I think he's got a bigger bankroll than you do um, he's, he's 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 not complying and so they're they're trying so desperately to control the narrative but it's it's this is why I'm ultimately an optimist even though we've we've had a very pessimistic conversation so far I think it's very difficult to to get people to shut up because because we're yeah, we're, we're we're Americans. Like you know, people outside the system. Like we, we have uh, hopefully the the freedom to do that still in this country. And I think, I think that's what they hate the most. I think it's very difficult to get a very small percentage of people to shut up. People like us. I I think it's I don't know five, six, seven percent. It's a small number, um, but eventually we chip away at it and people join, and become the majority. It can take a very long time, but my optimism comes from the idea that I, I I may sound like a naive idiot. I think eventually truth does win out. Yeah. And, you know, I, my experience with this came from my, you know, gymnastics career. I was an elite athlete as a child. It's a really abusive sport. 20 years after I left the sport, I still suffered. I spoke out about it. I was dragged across the internet for 10 years and eventually everyone came around and said, Oh, she's telling the truth. Yeah. It took 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I think the same thing is happening. Um, we, we haven't talked about your husband yet and those, those tweets that got you in so much trouble, but I think, you know, your critique of, of masking kids and closing schools, uh, even at this point seems like an obvious, Thing. Everybody, everybody acknowledges that it was a mistake. I don't think anyone's taking responsibility for the mistakes that they made. Um, and I think that will be true on lockdowns. Uh, you mentioned Jay Bhattacharya, and I think, I think he and those dissident epidemiologists are now being vindicated. So hopefully it doesn't take 10 years because, um, you know, if, if, um, if we're not proven to have been correct, they're just going to do it again. So I think I think it's important to speak out. That's that's I, that's probably why we're do, both doing it. And I, I want to go. I want to get back to the book specifically because there's yeah. there's something um, that that to me was was one of the most um, rending parts of the books. The the you know what your stance did um, to your family um, and how how it divided you with your with your brother and your parents. Tell that tell that story if you would. Yeah, I mean, my parents are older, they're 80. Um, they were really, really terrified. And, you know, um, 
look, they're in a high risk group. I'm not going to say that they aren't. And I would never advocate for them to not keep themselves as safe as they possibly could. What? And so we argued. They did not agree with my views. They bought into the media narrative hook, line and sinker. To my parents' credit, despite the fact that we argued and it got quite heated at times, my dad especially, we kept talking the whole time. We never stopped talking. He never didn't read the things I sent him. He stayed open in his own way. Now, in moments of panic, he was inappropriate. And I include some things he said to me and my husband on social media. But we always kept the lines of communication open. I think that's important. And my parents and I have had other struggles over the years, and we always sort of stick with it, you know? All I'm asking for people to do is to hear each other out, and they did that. We are closer now in our view, um, not 100% aligned. And one of the things I'm really angry about is they're still quite afraid, at least my mom is, to, you know, to see people. And here she is in the later part of her life, and she's Spending it at home, terrified. Yeah. You know, like I'm mad about that. I'm really angry about that. She's not seeing her grandchildren because she's scared. The 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 thing that should bring older people joy in the end of their life. So that's but like I said, we continued talking. It was heated at times. My brother and I do not speak anymore. Um, it was very heated from the very beginning. He disapproved of mine and my husband's views. And what I will never quite totally understand is why we went from disagreeing to my husband and I, in his mind, being literally the incarnation of evil. How did that happen? How did we get here as a country? How did my family get here? Um, but he became one of my trolls, essentially, on Twitter and interacted with people who were tagging my company and writing boycott Levi's. And he's, um, you know, even after I left the company, I don't think he was very happy with, because the coverage was, I would say, fair, by and large, um, neutral to positive, fair. You know, I wasn't positioned by and large, as an insane lunatic who deserved to be fired. And I don't think he liked that. And he pitched stories to people, Kyra Swisher, you know, a journalist with one and a half million followers, that the story is not as it seems. You know, she's corrupted by these outside forces, she being me. And I just, I don't know how I forgive that. You know, I want to stay open and I, I, almost didn't include anything about it in the book, but there's so many people going through this, these like terrible family rifts. And I just, you know, when I read books and memoirs in particular, it's those sort of vulnerable moments that allow me to connect to the words on the page and draw some strength. And so I thought it was important for that reason. I don't share any of our private communication that we don't have anymore, but we did at one point. Yeah. I only share what was public, but yeah. we haven't spoken in well over a year. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I yeah, I've, I've read a lot of your tweets um, in the book and, and you have such a reasonable approach and I, I tried as best I could to take that approach when I was tweeting about this. But if you if you'd read my my tweets over the years, I get I get more and more pointed and angry um, because I knew people were scared when I was first trying to communicate basically that there's a there's a cost to all of these actions and you're you're just ignoring what's happening um, to you know 
grandparents not seeing their grandchildren. And there's just a million things on that. Now, your husband Daniel was 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 more pointed, perhaps. And I, I don't I don't di- I don't disagree with either of you on this stuff. Um, but that that became that became a real flashpoint for you at the company. Yeah. I mean, Daniel's a different person than I am. He expresses himself differently in actual real life as well. I have a well-trained diplomatic voice. I try to build bridges. I don't know if it's my personality or having been a woman in corporate America for 30 years. You know, if I went around yelling at everybody all the time, I don't think that would have gone very well for me in my career. Um, You know, Daniel has a very forceful way of communicating if people used to say to me well i'm sure that's just his persona on twitter i was like oh that's him that's how he really is um and he didn't avoid any topics i did i avoided some topics that i had strong feelings about i i thought we could i thought i could build a bridge around kids mm-hmm. you know i thought if there's anything and that might give me them permission to talk about other things i was strategic Um, I didn't talk about vaccine mandates, you know, my company had one or still has one. I wasn't going, yeah, I was trying. It might not seem like it, but I was kind of trying to keep my job while also keeping my beliefs intact and my voice and, you know, not selling myself out. Um, But he was very vocal about discriminatory vaccine policies he was very vocal when the signals became apparent that there were really serious side effects from vaccines. That's why he was kicked off Twitter. He's still kicked off. He's, um, you know, we're hoping he gets to come back. Elon, if you're watching this. Elon, yeah, I just said it on a show earlier today too. Bring Daniel Coatsen back, you know, Naomi Wolf, uh, Dr. Robert Malone. None of these folks are, are back yet. And they all were kicked off for saying things that are now provably true. Now, you might say, okay, who cares? It's silly. It's just Twitter, whatever. It's social media. But the fact is, is that the government used a private company as an arm of the government to censor people. This should be very alarming to all of us. And they were censored for saying things that are provably true. My husband, the tweet he got kicked off for was he said, that these vaccines are causing myocarditis and strokes and blood clots. That they're that they're side effects, known side effects. That's a fact. And then he stated an opinion at the end of that, and he said, that's not what I call safe. Opinions are allowable. The first part is true. This should be alarming to all of us that the government would use a private company to censor citizens. And, and by, the, by the way, it's... Um, it's- you could characterize that tweet as criticizing pharmaceutical companies, but but I like to remind people that it was the federal government uh, was was an explicit partner, perhaps the senior partner in in the production and distribution and, and mandating of vaccination. So you have the Department of Homeland Security deciding that certain voices aren't allowed to be heard who are essentially criticizing the government. And, and that to me yeah. is is as dangerous as it gets. I I agree with you. That's why this whole thing is as dangerous as it gets. And it's why people like you and I can't stop shouting from the rooftops about it. You know, I will say one of the other things I got in trouble for at the company was talking about the profit motive of big, big pharma, which by the way, it's no secret. The, the motive, the primary motive of any company is profit. Yeah, <laughs> It just is. That's the fiduciary responsibility. I mean, that's in the bylaws. 
accepts your obligation. Um, but I started, I thought I was sly. I guess I wasn't that sly, you know, tweeting a little bit about pharma and Purdue and the opioid crisis. I was meant for it to be sort of an analogy um, that, you know, big pharma is in fact, does not have all our best interests at heart and they'll do anything basically to drive a sale. I was told I can't say that. At Kibbe on Liberty, freedom is a lifestyle 24 seven, something you live and breathe and wear every day. If that describes you, you need the very best Liberty swag in the market today. Just like this shirt I happen to be wearing. Go to freethepeople.org slash KOL and check out our exciting merch. You too can love Liberty and look cool. Yeah. Well, I would imagine that Levi's corporate office would love to cut a deal with the government where everyone was mandated to buy a pair of Levi's and then get boosted a couple times every year with with the, the next version of Levi's, right? Yeah, to guarantee that next sale. Yeah. Well, in this case, three or four times a year. Yeah. The next year, but I mean, that that would be great. Yeah. That would like, and and this get this gets back to like trying to understand why corporate America has gone in this direction. Um, I think I think it it it's it slides more into this mode over time where the profit profitability of of a company becomes more and more intertwined with their relationship with the government and you know do they know yeah. the committee chairman and that that is obviously corrupting because that's no longer about serving consumers that's about that's about gaming the system the the way that um, Samuel I can never I can, thank you thank you, thank you. Uh, yeah. uh, so someday I'm gonna get that the thing that's really well it's also confusing is two sets of initials FTX and SBF. Um, another thing that was sort of just mind blowing to me is this, like the left, they loved criticizing big business for taking advantage of consumers, right? That yeah. was like their thing, um, regulation to protect consumers. And now it's pharma is nothing, you know, has nothing but our best interests at heart. They would never try to sell you any drug or vaccine that would be harmful. They certainly wouldn't put these practices in place just to sell more. It's like, are you paying attention? Like what, honestly, do we need a more recent example than the opioid crisis? I think these companies are still paying out billions and billions of dollars. Um, another, I saw another lawsuit this morning. Uh, women are suing, I don't even know what um, company it is, um, for sort of hair straightening that's caused uterine cancer. Like, how much more proof do we need? And yet the left adopted this pro-science religious stance that pharma always has our best interest at heart. Yeah, it, I, I remember you can go on YouTube and watch uh, um, particularly um, uh, virtuous kids getting Pfizer tattoos. I never, never thought I'd see that one. That is strange. It's, it's, like, it's, like, a, it's, it's like a religious psychosis or something. And, and speaking of which, I want to go back to the family thing, because when I was reading that chapter in your book, I was thinking about a, a conversation that I had with a friend of mine who's been on this show a number of times, uh, Lee Schooland, who grew up um, in China during Mao's Cultural Revolution. And she has horrific stories about how the government would divide families and pit them against each yeah. other. And also, like um, she, she can tell stories about how her next door neighbors beat up her mother yeah. because 
she was not with the program. And the program was whatever the government said. So, so, so breaking up families here is, is more than just tragic. There's some, something systemic possibly going on here. And, and now I'm starting to sound like a, a tinfoil yeah, hat. I think hat you're guy. right. I think it's a feature, not a bug. Is that the phrase? It's a feature, not a bug. You yeah. know, what you described also describes East Germany. Um, and, you know, people were encouraged to tell on their neighbors and tell on their family members if they were seen to be violating whatever edict that could change at any moment that the government put forth. Um, but again, I think it's this denial of our to to prioritize the state above all else. You have to deny the individual and you have to deny human, the, the humanity of the individual, which is often most present in your home with your family right so it's you know i think i think you're correct in how you described it earlier and i i think i guess what i struggle with is how conscious is this strategy on the part of those driving it i mean you know in san francisco neighbors were encouraged to turn in their neighbors if they had guests in their home yeah people called the police on my family when we went to the park together, when they finally allowed us to go outside in groups, we weren't allowed to go outside in groups. Um, what was permitted at that point was to go out just within your household. Well, I have a fairly large household. I have four children. Two of my children are mixed race. We don't look like a traditional family. People called the police on us because they said, you must be mixing households. I had to defend my family, these children as my children to police officers. That's just so disgusting, um, and and that's the new left. So by by the way, we should point out that um, you you make it clear in the book that you are a lifelong Democrat and that you very much consider yourself a liberal, but you've you've left the uh, the 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 tribe, the cult, whatever it is. Um, what are you? Wh where? How would you describe yourself now? Well, I'm not a Republican either. I, you know, I'm not kind of going to flee one um, oppressive orthodoxy for what I perceive to be as another. I have been sort of embraced by the right. So, you know, I, you know, my general people are very critical of some of the folks I've chosen to talk to about my story. I, you know, my view is we I'll talk to anybody um, that is interested in this message. And if we disagree on some stuff, that's fine. Um, I'm registered as unaffiliated in Colorado, which, by the way, 40% of the citizens here are. Um, you know, and everybody always says that unaffiliated or independent is basically a Republican, just admit it. But Colorado has 40% unaffiliated, and we have a Democratic governor. And in fact, Polis has turned the state quite blue. But there is a real libertarian streak here, which leads me to my point is I think as I try to kind of figure out where I am in the wilderness, I lean mostly towards probably where you sit, which is um, libertarian and, and pro-freedom. Um, I recognize that a vote for a libertarian probably doesn't do me much good in the, in the world of, of voting, but um, I just, yeah, I can't really embrace either party. I don't want to embrace a kind of an orthodoxy that says you must tick all these boxes in order to be accepted by us. And so I'll just remain a free agent for now that with the spirit of a libertarian, I think. Yeah, yeah. it's it's frustrating to be uh, politically homeless and 
And I do think that, you know, the, the one thing that I refuse to become is, is to, to join one party just so I can vote against the other guys, because that, that to me is the cancer that, that you're sort of, sort of otherizing these, these ideas. Um, my half-baked theory as to why Republicans didn't do better, better in this last, last election is they, they weren't actually for something. They were just against things, and, and that proved, um, definitely proved not to be enough. I agree that that's a hundred percent correct. They were um, against Democrats. They were against inflation. Well, who's not against inflation? But they, they didn't really offer real solutions. And I think what's interesting is, you know, the two um, governors that won most decisively were Ron DeSantis and my governor, Jared Polis. And I have, I mean, I don't want to get into Polis and what he did well and what he didn't, but he did the best of the Democratic governors, I would say. I mean, that's why we moved here. And both, in a sense, ran on freedom, and they had real policies that they had put into place. You can love or hate DeSantis. You know, he stood up to the COVID narrative. He got kids in school. Old folks were allowed to have visitors in the hospital and not die alone. Beyond that, he did also, he raised teacher pay and he lowered prescription drug prices for Floridians. Like he is action oriented. Now he plays in the rhetoric and all that stuff too, but he did stuff that made the lives of Floridians better. And I think Polis did as well. They both won by 20 points and they both flipped their purple states, one red and the other blue. And I see a lot of, Polis doesn't like it. I think Bill Maher said, um, I see some commonality between the two of you. And, you know, Polis took umbrage at that. But I think it was an insightful comment from from Maher. Yeah, like there's some authenticity there. And this is sort of my optimistic theory about where we're going from this hyper-tribalism to some, some new political coalition seems to be emerging that I would call both anti authoritarian and more um, live and let live. Let's focus on communities and working things out from the bottom up. And and you're seeing like uh, comedians like like even Bill Maher. I, I used to go on Bill Maher a long time ago, and he would just he would just call me all sorts of horrible names. Um, but now I now I find very little that I disagree with him on. And I, I think I think you're seeing um, you know um, the old civil libertarian liberals. And yeah. and and people from across the political spectrum that are actually looking for something that that is against this sort of monolithic, top-down, authoritarian thing that we seem to be becoming. And I, I think there's something interesting happening there. I'm not sure what it is. I think that's right. I mean, I I think I thought it was bigger than it was yeah. already because that's the group I find myself in. So fine, I'm in a bubble, I guess, maybe a little bit of a bubble. Um, I thought it was bigger and even if not really big, big enough to kind of shake things up a bit more in the election. Um, I don't think that was the case. Um, You know, and I I think, you know, on a very practical level, I think the overturning of Roe did have an absolute impact. And I think that um, states that were uncompromising on that, I mean, I think this is another good example. here, I'll give you the polis example. Colorado is very libertarian. There's a lot of guns, there's a lot of weed, and you can get an abortion up to 40 weeks. I don't necessarily agree with getting abortions up to 40 weeks. I think that's incredibly problematic. But his point in saying that is he's 
it, he's he's standing on the side of freedom and a woman's ability to choose with her doctor. Um, same on guns and same on weed. And they legalize mushrooms here in Colorado as well. And so he very, very much is furthering this message of freedom. I think it is a growing coalition. I just think it's going to take longer than I thought for it to build into a meaningful voting block. And I think most people still defaulted to their typical ways of doing things. Yeah. You know, yeah. it, it almost, um, you know, the worst things get, it almost seems to push people back into their camps because they're so afraid of the other team. And that's, that's sort of a dilemma. Um, certainly for the libertarian party, I think, um, political independence, um, but like everything else, um, it's, it's going to work itself out. I, I count on people. I like your, I like your optimism. You're cheering me up. I gotta, I gotta say. This is the whole, the whole basis of my libertarianism is that people have a way if, if left free enough, people always have a way to figure stuff out and it's not necessarily pretty, but it's so much, um, more effective for um, solving problems and, and creating innovation than it is when you give all the power to one guy, the smartest guy in the room, and he says, do this. And that's what we just went through with COVID. We saw the collateral damage caused by that. Uh, I, I just think we have to make the case for bottom-up community-based problem solving. And, and, you know, for libertarians aren't so good at that either. We, we're constantly sort of yelling at the sky about, about the Federal Reserve and stuff like that. And I'm, I'm one of those guys, yeah. by the way. I think my concern and what I see with the younger generations, and now I sound like an old bogey, get off my lawn type person. Um, I feel like there's kind, you know, uh, I've been trying to make this case for freedom, um, freedom of speech, freedom to assemble. I didn't think it was a case I'd ever have to make. But it feels like having gone through what we just went through, lots of people don't care that much about it and they're willing to give it up in exchange for a feeling of belonging and safety whether yeah. or not they actually are safer the feeling of safety and that's what's been really alarming for me you know because the oldsters like us are making this case and screaming about freedom and young people are like meh yeah yeah um the 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 mob and and your your whole story is about that like these these are people that turned on you that you probably never imagined they would and and once once they're a mob instead of free thinking individuals it gets really dangerous yeah that's a really dark sure. way to end this conversation uh, yeah i was like you were leaving me on a high note but um and to be clear you know that mob was there was a twitter mob but there was an employee mob and there were people calling the ethics hotline like this went from virtual to real life yeah. very quickly. And in fact, I think the real life mob had an even greater impact because employees, and it wasn't a lot of them. This is what's also sort of kind of mind boggling about it all is a handful of employees were sending emails that they were upset with me to the CEO. I still don't for the life of me understand why he couldn't stand up and say, I got your email. She's a mom. She gets to say what she wants to say. She's not saying it on behalf of the company, get back to work, which is essentially what Ted Sarandos, the CEO from Netflix said when employees, there were supposed to be thousands at this protest, you know, to take Chappelle yeah. off the platform. And I think there were like 12. Yeah. And he said, enough, go back to work. Yeah. Leave if you want. 
Um, I don't really see, and he knew that was good business to do that. And it, it worked, frankly. I don't think there was a mass exodus from the company. He, and, and when I say good business, he meant we have a lot of stuff we're going to show because lots of different kinds of people who like lots of different kinds of things watch Netflix. We're going to appeal to the most people possible. If you don't like that, you don't need to work here. I don't really understand why more people, more leaders can't do that. I think it quiets fairly quickly when you do that, when you exhibit just the tiniest degree of common sense and I guess to some extent courage. Yeah. But they don't. So there's there's the optimistic note we can can leave on because I think you said this earlier that you know um, in order to get people um, headed in a more reasonable direction, someone has to go first, and someone someone has to um, sort of stick their neck out and show people what courage and leadership looks like. And I, you know, I we could do an entire second show on CEOs that don't show that courage, um, but you absolutely did and. Uh, I, I think I think this is the hero's journey, the, the book that you've written. Um, most people don't have the guts to do what you did, and I, I absolutely enjoyed the book, and I enjoyed this conversation. How do people get this book? Can you get it on Amazon now? Well, now you can. Unfortunately, the day it launched, there had been pre-sale, and literally the day it launched, you couldn't buy it on Amazon, which was alarming to me and of course kind of put up all my conspiracy theory yeah that's that's really weird because um you know as you probably know if if you want to make um some of the big lists to propel your book into sales the pre-sales are are really important so i i I think it's unusual and i think after the last three years we should be conspiratorial about all sorts of things yeah and then, but now it is, it is for sale. So you can get it on Amazon. You can get an ebook, you can get a hardcover. And as of a few days from now, you'll be able to get audio, which some people apparently like. It's not my jam, but <laughs> um, Barnes and Noble, your local bookstore, you know, all the typical places. Um, you can buy it anywhere in all formats. And I hope people do, and I hope they read it. And I hope, I want to hear from people, leave reviews, even if you hate it. Again, I'm all about kind of, let's talk about it. If you hate it, tell me, tell me why, what do you disagree with? Um, But I, it's a little, like I said, it's a little different. I think, you know, primarily it is this sort of call to people to use their voices and to stand up and find the courage because we are being inundated with falsehoods and people are too afraid to speak up. And I really feel like if we don't do it now, we're going to lose the chance. We really are going to lose the chance. Um, And woke corporate culture is a part of it. That's the part I explore as someone who spent 30 years in corporate America. But we've seen it on university campuses. We see it. We see it all over the place. And I just, I hope it encourages people to just try that little bit in your own way. Do your own one little thing. Ask the teacher, ask the principal at the school, why can't you do in-person parent-teacher conferences yet? Just one thing. Do one thing today. Jennifer, thank you. Thank you, Matt. It's nice to meet you finally. Yeah, yeah. Keep keep fighting. We'll, we'll figure out other ways to conspire. Oh, let's... Um, Let's talk just for two minutes about your film project because I wanted people to yeah. know about that. 
Awesome. Yeah, I appreciate the moment to do that. So I have the book, but I'm making a documentary film. I made one in the past called Athlete A, which you can watch on Netflix. So I'm making one now about the impact to kids from the uh, prolonged school closures. We're following kids and families. We've got about 10 kids across the country that we've been tracking. I will tell you, the kids are not, they're not all right. You know, all sorts of impacts. And I want a record of what happened to these kids. I don't want, people want to sweep it under the rug. They want amnesty. We're creating a record of what happened to these kids. And I feel, I believe in my heart of hearts and the power of art to change hearts and minds. And I um, want to get this film done so people can see. I want them to look these kids in the eye and I want them to know what happened and the opportunities they were denied in their lives and how they're fighting like hell to get back on track. Those that have support. Um, so yeah, it's, I think it's really powerful. I just showed a trailer for the first time, uh, to a group of folks this weekend, um, a conference that I spoke at and people wept and applauded and I feel very encouraged and I need to keep going. We do need, uh, I, I, this is the part I like least, but we still need funders. So if anybody is interested in, um, being a producer on a film and believes in this story, you can find me. You can DM me. My email's in my Twitter handle. You can ask Matt. He'll connect us. Cool. Yeah. This, uh, I couldn't agree more that that's accountability and, and making sure that this story doesn't get swept under the rug. This is, this is part of what leadership is. So thank you for that as well. And uh, yes, I encourage people to, if you, if you want to get involved in that, you can find Jennifer on Twitter um, or just message me and I'll, I'll connect you guys. Thank you again. This has been awesome. And, and let's do it again when the, when the film comes Thanks. out. Awesome. Thank you, Matt. You've been a voice of inspiration and reason. Make me feel like I'm not crazy. Yeah, you're not nearly as crazy as me, at least. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Bye-bye. Thanks for watching. If you liked the conversation, make sure to like the video, subscribe, and also ring the bell for notifications. And if you want to know more about Free the People, go to freethepeople.org.